I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, host of the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Clinical Guidelines podcast series. Today, we're going to be discussing the clinical practice guidelines for outpatient parental antimicrobial therapy, also called OPAT. OPAT is defined as the administration of IV antimicrobial therapy in at least two doses on different days without an intervening hospitalization. This is such an important area and has become used so commonly that it's almost hard to remember when we weren't using it. And uh, actually, the first studies of this were published in 1974, where it was looked at for children with cystic fibrosis. Uh, the benefits of OPAT are large, both, both to patients and to the healthcare system. For the healthcare system, there are shorter hospital stays, sometimes the ability to avoid hospital stays, and that can lead to significant cost savings. For patients, the advantages are even larger. They can get back home, they can get back to their lives with minimal interruption. In the United States now, patients rarely need to stay in the hospital when the only reason for them being there is to get IV antibiotics. Most patients are eligible for some form of OPAT, and we'll touch on what those exceptions are. Today, we're privileged to have one of the chairs of the Guidelines Committee, Dr. Ann Norris, joining us. Dr. Norris is medical director of the Penn Presbyterian Medical Center Infectious Diseases Specialty Clinic. She is associate professor of clinical medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Perelman School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Thanks, Neil. I'm happy to be here. Let's start by discussing the three models or general locations where OPAT's given, and the things we need to be attentive to to make sure that uh, it's safe to give infusions at home. Anne? There are three general models for the delivery of OPAT. The most common one in the United States is the home-based model. In this model, patients infuse antimicrobials themselves under the oversight of a typically a visiting nurse who comes to the house once a week to do an assessment, change the catheter dressing, and draw labs. But the degree of nursing support can range um, quite a bit in this model. The VA, for instance, has a hospital-at-home model where nurses are doing all of the infusions, frequently have multiple visits a day, and patients are doing none of the home care. And um, there are other models where there's actually no visiting nurse whatsoever. Patients do the infusing at home and come to a clinic or an office one a week, once a week for labs, supplies, and assessment. If a patient is going to infuse at home, the minimal features required for safe infusion include adequate refrigeration and storage and the presence of at least one adult who can reliably learn and perform sterile infusion technique and be able to communicate with the treatment team. The infusion center model uh, differs because the uh, antimicrobials are delivered in an office, a physician's office, or a freestanding infusion center, sometimes an emergency room, and healthcare workers are the ones delivering the antimicrobials. This model works well for patients who are physically unable or unwilling to infuse themselves, and it's also an important model for Medicare patients who lack a home infusion insurance benefit since IV antimicrobial administration in an outpatient clinic is a covered benefit of Medicare Part D, Part B, 
the infusion center model tends to minimize the patient's out-of-pocket costs. But this model is resource intensive. It requires reliable transportation, the availability of a skilled nurse, and all the accompanying office resources. It requires weekend office hours, but it offers additional oversight with daily in-person visits, which may be very beneficial for some patients. The last model is the skilled nursing facility. In this model, patients with additional nursing needs, for instance, having wound care needs or physical therapy, or no infusion insurance benefit are admitted to a SNF where on-site nurses perform all of the infusion functions. Since a SNF is a healthcare facility, patients are more likely to encounter resistant organisms like C. diff. And overall, this option is significantly more expensive to the healthcare system compared to any of the other OPAT models, but it may actually minimize the patient's out-of-pocket expense. So it's interesting, and it, it there really are lots of options, and it seems that for patients who are able and who uh, also have some support at home, really a home option where they're giving their own antibiotics is probably uh, the preferred choice, but that there that that this isn't only for those uh, high functioning patients, but patients who have supports at home that are not fully comfortable things sometimes can get uh, additional nursing support. And as you said, there's also, uh, depending on the system you're in, the uh, opportunity for infusion centers and uh, SNF placement. Uh, Are there exceptions to who can be treated with OPAT at home? We looked at uh, several patient populations. Um, In particular, we looked at the question of whether elderly patients should be offered OPAT And while not a strong evidence base because they were observational in nature, there were 11 retrospective reviews that addressed the question of OPAT in the elderly and found no increase in readmissions or mortality. So we concluded if issues around cognition, dexterity, and mobility have been addressed, that elderly patients or their caregivers could be, um, could be treated with, could, (laughs) we could use the OPAT model for uh, these patients at home. In contrast, infants less than one month old, there is really a paucity of information. This extremely limited experience and many clinical and logistical issues around this vulnerable population, for instance, signs of treatment failure could be subtle in a, in a two-week-old. We concluded that neonatal OPAT had to be, if at all, rendered on a case-by-case category. And um, there are a lot of pediatricians who would feel that the entire course of IV therapy needed to be completed in an inpatient setting where compliance and continuous clinical clinical monitoring could be assessed. Similarly, a very vexing and increasingly important population is the use of OPAT for people who inject drugs, particularly in this burgeoning opiate epidemic in the United States. One large prospective OPAT study with almost 1,500 patients found a higher rate of vascular access complications among the 16 persons who injected drugs in the study. But otherwise, useful data on OPAT for uh, people who inject drugs is virtually non-existent. There are only case series of patients who've completed OPAT successfully, but they were in specialized programs that had either a PIC that detected tampering or specialized drug treatment residential housing. So like 
young infants, we concluded that the use of OPAT in persons who inject drugs requires a case-by-case -case evaluation, taking into consideration the local resources, is there a respite house available, for instance, and the circumstances around the individual patient. That makes a lot of sense. That's an area that uh, I've always found the idea of to be a bit scary. On the other hand, I was very happy to see what the guidelines said about the elderly, because that's a group that we use OPET in uh, very frequently, because it's a group we'd like to get out of the hospital. They're, they're, the, they're probably the most, one of the most vulnerable groups with regard to uh, potential for iatrogenic complications and immo complications of immobility. Um, is it safe and appropriate to administer the first OPAT dose of a new antibiotic uh, to a patient at home? For many patients starting OPAT, therapy is a continuation of inpatient care, where the patient's already demonstrated tolerance to the drug. However, it's not unusual to start a new or entirely different antimicrobial as an outpatient. The 2004 IDSA practice guideline for OPAT recommended that this first dose be done in a supervised healthcare setting. But depending on your local resources, this can be logistically very challenging and a significant burden for patients. And reports of anaphylaxis related to OPAT are rare. In the largest study of its kind, there were no instances of anaphylaxis among 770 patients who received 1,000 courses of home OPAT with 25 different drugs. So we concluded that the patient's home may be a suitable setting if the first dose is administered in the presence of a person, for instance, a home care nurse who is competent to manage anaphylaxis and has the supplies. That's fantastic. Uh, something that we often don't think a lot about but is really important are, are the details of what types of catheters we uh, can put in for OPAT. Can you talk a little bit about the choices of catheters and uh, considerations about which to put in when? Sure. In OPAT, among the central catheter options, there are PICs and long-term central catheters, of which there are two types, the tunneled central catheter, like a Hickman, and ports. Among non-central lines, there are also two types, midlines, for instance, which are peripheral catheters inserted into the large veins of the arm, but the tip ends before the axillary line. It doesn't extend into the heart. It's not a central catheter. And there are the short peripheral catheters, or PIVs, as we called them when I was training. For a variety of reasons, including the desire to reduce central line-associated bloodstream infections, there's been an increasing interest in the use of midline catheters for OPAT. And we looked at the safety of this practice and concluded that in adult patients needing short courses of OPAT, which we arbitrarily defined as 14 days, a midline catheter may be used rather than a central catheter. There are no published data in the pediatric populations addressing the use of midline catheters for children who need OPAT, and midlines are only recently being adopted in this population, and so more data will be needed before we can make a recommendation about their safety. One population where we make a strong recommendation with regard to catheter choice is that of patients with advanced chronic kidney disease. Because functioning AV fistulas in hemodialysis patients have superior patency rates and are associated with decreased mortality, morbidity, and cost compared to synthetic grafts or central venous catheters, vein preservation leading up to the start of dialysis is of paramount importance. 
So for patients with advanced kidney disease requiring OPAT, we recommend the use of a tunneled central catheter rather than a PICC line. This is a strong recommendation in consensus with CMS and the National Kidney Foundation. Hmm. That's important. Um, when we think about the antibiotics that we're going to give, are there any things that we need to consider for uh, some antibiotics being administered through one catheter versus another as a preference? Right, right. So despite common perceptions, we found that there is really insufficient evidence to state that it is unsafe to administer vancomycin through a non-central catheter. There were small observational studies, and some showed an increased infiltration score with vancomycin, but the studies were of such low quality that we felt they should not be used to guide practice. We can't make any recommendation on other vesicants, such as nafcillin or acyclovir, due to the lack of evidence, but we stated that mandatory use of a central catheter over a non-central catheter for OPAT with vanco was not necessary. Okay, that's helpful. Uh, now, one of the complications that we see now and then is uh, basically venous thromboembolism around the catheter. Does the catheter need to come out uh, in that circumstance? Yeah. Surprising to many, this is not necessarily the case. We concluded that it's not necessary to remove a vascular access device if venous thrombosis associated with the catheter developed during OPAT as long as the catheter remains well-positioned and arm pain and swelling decrease with anticoagulation. This was a weak recommendation based on low-quality evidence from two studies showing that line function could be preserved and that other reverse events were not increased with this strategy. And this is in keeping with recommendations from many other societies, including the American College of Chest Physicians and the Infusion Nursing Society. That guidance is helpful because it's always a bit uh, confusing about what to do when that, that happens. Uh, for patients receiving Vanco as part of OPAT, uh, any recommendations about uh, measurement of uh, vancomycin levels? Several well-designed studies have demonstrated that vancomycin for OPAT is associated with more adverse events than comparator antibiotics, and anybody that does OPAT uh, with any frequency will tell you that. Um, ample published clinical data also link nephrotoxicity to higher vanco trough levels that are now commonly used for the treatment of serious MRSA infections. Importantly, in a retrospective cohort of 580 OPAT patients receiving vancomycin, of the 150 who developed nephrotoxicity, fully 42% of them did so after 14 days, highlighting the, the importance of vancomycin nephrotoxicity that can occur at any time during the treatment course, even with previously stable renal function. With regard to patients who are getting OPAT as an outpatient, uh, is there a recommendation about how often they should have scheduled office visits to see us? <laughs> the specifics of how to best monitor patients on OPAT are completely unclear. We have no information on the frequency of office visits, for instance, and practices all over the place, from weekly face-to-face -face visits with a provider to one visit at the end of therapy. Frankly, if we're lucky, getting patients to come in for that last visit can be a real struggle. Hmm. We do know that serial laboratory testing should be done in patients receiving OPAT, and this is a strong recommendation with high-quality evidence. We don't have data on what exact testing should be done and when the uh, Details are not evident, but 
the guideline does contain an expanded version of the original antimicrobial uh, recommendation table that appeared in prior versions, and it makes best practice suggestions based on pharmaceutical databases and manufacturers' recommendations on testing and frequency of testing. That makes sense. And, and the lab testing makes so much sense. And I, I'm not surprised that there isn't clarity about office visits because clearly we're going to see someone who's on, say, Vanco for a bad cellulitis at a different frequency than if they're receiving outpatient therapy for uh, a chronic osteomyelitis, for instance. Um, this is an exciting area. Any new things on the horizon that is worth our audience knowing about? Um, there is early experiential literature on the use of uh, subcutaneous antimicrobials. Um, the uh, benefit there, obviously, is avoiding the use of a central catheter. Um, and I think also it will be interesting to see uh, if there's a role for telehealth for telemonitoring with OPAT. Um, this may be useful um, in less heavily resourced areas where it is really, really difficult for patients to get into the uh, clinic for monitoring. So I think those are two areas where more, uh, more data will be helpful. That makes sense. It's, uh, there's a lot of exciting things to come. You know, it was really nice having the opportunity to talk to you about this it's something that we do all the time and don't necessarily think as much or in as much detail about it as we do about diagnostic choices and the decision about antibiotics, but clearly it has a large impact on our patients. Uh, for more information on the IDSA guidelines on the management of OPAT, a full version of the guidelines is available on the IDSA's website. Uh, Dr. Norris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. For the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Guidelines podcast series, I'm your host, Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thanks for listening.